0: It's July 1603 at the Old Exeter Inn in Ashburton, a town in the south of England. The place is packed. Among the crowd of travelers, revelers, and drunkards, one man sits alone at a table in the back. His name is Sir Walter Raleigh. He's tall, dark, and handsome, with neatly groomed eyebrows and a freshly trimmed beard. But this nobleman is so much more than just a handsome face. Raleigh is a swashbuckling Renaissance man, a poet an explorer, and a spy for the late Queen of England, Elizabeth I. But lately, Raleigh has fallen out of favor with the crown. Raleigh had a good relationship with Elizabeth, who died back in March, but he made little effort to endear himself to her successor. The new king doesn't trust Raleigh, and he has little use for him. So he stripped Raleigh of his home, title, and business. Raleigh was furious, but there was nothing to be done. The king is the king. So Raleigh sits alone in the Exeter Inn, drinking his troubles away. Until suddenly, the doors to the tavern fly open. Soldiers, the King's men, storm inside the inn and make for Raleigh. He tries to fight them off, but it's no use. He's outnumbered. The King's men quickly restrain him, bind his hands, and proclaim that he is under arrest for the crime of treason. While Raleigh protests his innocence, the guests at the inn watch in shock as the soldiers drag him out into the street. Raleigh will be taken to the Tower of London, where he will remain a prisoner until his trial, which will take place some four months later on November 17, 1603. But Raleigh knows that this trial will not be fair. In England, they rarely are. So Raleigh will have to be clever, or he will no doubt meet the sharp edge of an executioner's blade. From Noiser and Airship, I'm Lindsey Graham, and this is History Daily. History is made every day. On this podcast, every day, we tell the true stories of the people and events that shaped our world. Today is November 17th. The Treason Trial of Sir Walter Raleigh Sir Walter Raleigh's rise began around 1580, 23 years before his arrest. While serving the Crown in Ireland, Raleigh's heroic deeds in the military catch the attention of Queen Elizabeth I. After he returns home from Ireland, the Queen keeps Raleigh in her court. His charm and charisma are unmatched, as is his mastery of the art of debate and persuasion. In return for his continued service to the crown, she gives him the elegant Durham House on the Strand in London as his home. She makes him a knight. She deploys him as a spy and an explorer. She even grants him a royal charter to colonize the New World. And in return, his flattery towards his queen is boundless. Raleigh writes numerous poems for Elizabeth. He attempts to form a colony in the New World in what is today North Carolina. He names it Virginia after her, the Virgin Queen. But not everyone is a fan of Raleigh. One of Elizabeth's closest advisors, Sir William Cecil, thinks Raleigh is a dangerous man who whispers dangerous ideas in Elizabeth's ear. He famously says that Raleigh can do more damage in one hour-long conversation with Elizabeth than Cecil can do in an entire year. But when the Queen finds out that Raleigh secretly wedded another woman, Elizabeth I joins Cecil's suspicion of him. In 1593, Elizabeth discovers Raleigh has secretly married her lady-in-waiting, a woman named Bessie Throckmorton. She also learns the couple had a baby together, who died in infancy. The Queen is furious. Some speculate that Elizabeth is a scorned lover. Others claim the Queen's anger with Raleigh and Bessie is due to their sly behavior. She is, after all, the sort of woman who demands unflinching loyalty and total honesty from her subordinates. Either way, after learning of their subterfuge, the Queen no longer trusts Raleigh or Bessie, so she locks them away in the Tower of London. It's the first time Raleigh is confined there, but won't be the last. A year later, in 1594, after Raleigh and Bessie are freed, Raleigh is able to regain favor with Elizabeth. She sends him on several expeditions to Guyana, what is now Venezuela, to search for El Dorado, the mythical city of gold. During his decades-long relationship with Elizabeth, Raleigh is often dishonest, but he never betrays the crown, and he is never accused of committing treason. Until Elizabeth dies in 1603, and his loyalty is publicly brought into question. With Queen Elizabeth dead, and King James VI of Scotland, now King James I of England, sitting on the throne, tensions in court are rising. It's hardly a secret that Raleigh dislikes James, and the feeling is mutual. So once in power, King James wastes no time removing his enemies. He evicts Raleigh and his family from Durham House, his home of twenty years. James also strips Raleigh of his captainship of the Guard and his monopolies on wine licenses that Elizabeth I bestowed upon him. Raleigh is left humiliated and financially crippled, but he's not the only one. Raleigh's longtime friend Henry Brooke, the eleventh Baron of Cobham, and his younger brother George Brooke also suffer similar losses. As a result, Henry and George start to formulate a plan for revenge. But eventually, word of their plot gets around, and George Brooke is arrested under suspicion of treason. To save his neck, he admits that he and his brother have been developing a plan to kidnap the king. But he also reveals another plot to dethrone King James. This one, George says, involves Sir Walter Raleigh. George provides no proof, but his accusation is enough to make Raleigh a wanted man. So on July 19th, 1603, when Raleigh sits at a table in the back of the old Exeter Inn, he has no idea that George has accused him of treason or that in a short time, soldiers will storm into the building and drag him out by force. Raleigh is delivered to the Tower of London on July 19th, 1603. The allegations against him are based solely on information provided by George Brooke, the younger brother of Henry Brooke, the 11th Baron of Cobham. George claimed that Raleigh turned to the Spanish government to secure funds to orchestrate King James's ouster. Raleigh maintains that this is a ludicrous accusation. After all, back in the 1580s, Raleigh helped defend England against the Spanish Armada. The idea that he would accept money from Spain to overthrow a king, even one he doesn't like, is far-fetched. Desperate to clear his name, Raleigh writes to the Privy Council, the monarchy's advisory board, claiming to have dirt on Henry Brooke and his plot to kidnap King James. But this is a fatal error. Henry is also being held at the Tower of London. When he finds out Raleigh has spoken out against him, he becomes overcome with rage, shouting that Raleigh is a traitor and a villain. Shortly after, Henry makes an official statement to the Council, claiming that Raleigh was the chief orchestrator of the plots against the king. Raleigh begins to fear that his fate is sealed, and soon he will resort to drastic measures. It's late July 1603, and Raleigh has been at the Tower for less than two weeks. He sits in his room and scribbles a note. This isn't the usual picture one might have of a prisoner. He's not in chains, and he's not dressed in a prison uniform. He wears the clothes of a nobleman. His room is well furnished, hardly a dank dungeon. He is, after all, a beloved figure to many in his country, which affords him certain privileges even in prison. Still, Raleigh is despondent. He fears execution. So he pens a letter to his wife, Bessie. He writes, "O oh, death, destroy my memory, which is my tormentor. My thoughts and my life cannot dwell in one body.'" Raleigh has procured a knife, and he snuck the weapon into his quarters, but he isn't planning to use it to mount an escape. Instead, when he finishes the letter, He takes the knife in his hand and gouges the blade deep into his chest. Many historians will write off this event as mere histrionics, a dramatic act of self-pity. Others will consider it a desperate act by a man who would rather take his own life than face an unjust trial. Regardless, though, the suicide attempt fails. Raleigh lives, and soon he will be tried for treason. But a recent outbreak of the plague means Raleigh's trial won't take place at the Tower, but at Winchester Castle, some 70 miles southwest of London. As the guards transport him there by carriage, spectators gather in towns and villages along the way to lay eyes on the accused traitor. They shout abuses at Raleigh and throw mud and stones at the coach. One eyewitness will later recall, it's almost incredible what bitter speeches and execrations he was exclaimed upon. Raleigh does his best to ignore it. He knows the people have it wrong. He's not a traitor. He's falsely accused. The only question is, will he be able to prove it? On November 17, 1603, the day of the trial, Sir Walter Raleigh sits at a table, facing a panel of justices and commissioners. A large crowd watches from the gallery. As the trial begins, the atmosphere in the Great Hall is something like a boxing match. The fiery prosecutor, Sir Edward Coke, rails at Raleigh, bellowing, All Henry Brooke did was at thy instigation, thou viper. I will prove thee the rankest traitor in all England. Raleigh replies coolly, Mr. Attorney, you may call me a traitor at your pleasure, but I take comfort in it. It is all that you can do. Each time Coke tries a new line of attack, Raleigh replies with a parry and an appeal to reason, pointing out that the prosecutor does not have any evidence. As one London merchant will later recall, Raleigh's answers were interlaced with arguments of divinity, humanity, civil law, and common law. And as the trial goes on, Raleigh wins over the crowd, who begin to hiss and boo whenever prosecutor Coke speaks. Near the end of the trial, Raleigh reminds the court that Coke's only evidence is an old statement from Henry Brooke. Then, with a dramatic flourish, Raleigh produces new evidence. While imprisoned at the Tower of London, Raleigh used his powers of persuasion to convince Henry Brooke to recant his previous statement, and to write a new one exonerating Raleigh. In the courtroom, when Raleigh presents the new statement, there's an audible gasp from the crowd, and for a brief moment, it looks as if Raleigh has won the day. But the fiery prosecutor is also persuasive, and he too has used his powers to lean on Henry Brooke, who has made a third, more recent statement reaffirming that Raleigh was the chief orchestrator of the plot against the king. Soon, the trial is over. It takes less than 15 minutes for the verdict to come back. Sir Walter Raleigh is found guilty of treason and sentenced to death. Raleigh is devastated, but he's not the only one. Raleigh doesn't succeed at trial, but he does win in the court of public opinion. Over the next few days, the tale of his impassioned defense spreads far and wide, and public sympathy grows. One official will later write, So well he shifted all advantages that were taken against him that in the opinion of all men, he had been acquitted. In the face of this mounting public pressure, King James temporarily stays Raleigh's execution, but he refuses to pardon him of the crime of treason. Raleigh will remain in the tower with his wife, Bessie, alive for now, but with the legal status of a dead man. During his long time in prison, Raleigh amasses a 500 book library He writes and later publishes a book titled The History of the World. He and Bessie give birth to their second child. And then, in 1616, King James releases Raleigh and sends him on another expedition to find the fabled city of gold, El Dorado. During his quest, Raleigh attacks a Spanish fort against the wishes of King James. Raleigh evaded the hangman's noose on November 17, 1603, but as a result of his brazen defiance of the king's wishes in attacking Spain... Raleigh is eventually executed, beheaded, on October 29, 1618. But in the end, it wasn't Raleigh that was on trial that November seventeenth. It was the English judicial system. Raleigh became a martyr for many enlightened thinkers who wished to challenge the arbitrary abuse of state power over the liberty of the individual. His trial led to the notion that an accused has the right to face their accuser, and has been cited in court cases ever since. Next on History Daily, November 18, 1978, cult leader Jim Jones leads 918 members of the People's Temple in a mass suicide. From Noiser and Airship, this is History Daily, hosted, edited, and executive produced by me, Lindsey Graham. Audio editing by Molly Bach. Music and sound design by Lindsey Graham. This episode is written and researched by Luke Coons. Executive producers are Stephen Walters for Airship and Pascal Hughes for Noiser.